Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 21st, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. And in today's sermon, Practicing Righteousness, Pastor Jeff Stevens is going to be teaching from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small. I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. Turn to 1 John uh, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 28. We're going to go through 1 John 3, 3. And just to kind of overview where John is at here in, in this is that John is now going to revert to what we call his cycle of tests. And he's expanding and enforcing them. This particular test is a moral test. It's a moral test of obedience or a moral test of righteousness. It's why I titled this sermon Practicing Righteousness. And if you're anything like me, and this is, uh, you're, uh, this is we used to do this at last church that I was at, uh, when the pastor would say, does anyone else do this? We'd all say no, right? So just so that he's the only one that does that. But we... We have this within ourselves, right, where we start to realize that obedience and righteousness, the stuff that we know in our head versus maybe what the person on your left or right knows, oftentimes are two completely different things. And so the mere practicing of righteousness might bring some sort of fear or an intimidation, but I want to show you today how this is incredibly encouraging. But this moral test, We'll, of course, see later the social test of love in a couple weeks when we get to 3.11 through 18. Um, and then ultimately, we'll see a doctrinal test of truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ when we get to uh, 1 John chapter 4. But, but right here in this exposition he, uh, of three tests, he throws out to us for the first time, he describes us as the believer as born of God. And we're going to look at that and the importance and the significance of that. Previously, of course, he's delineated us as one who knows God or is in Christ or is in the light um, and remains or remains in the Father and the Son. But in this verse in 229, there comes the, the, the four, the, that birth from God, which makes it possible for us to know God. And it not only makes it possible for us to know God, it makes it possible for us to remain in God. And it's such a spiritual birth, and it's due to what we call a divine begetting. We don't really use that term begetting or begotten. If you uh, carry with you an NASB, you'll notice that, that in John 3.16 it says, His only begotten Son. And so this term begotten is the imparting of life. It's the imparting of life in God. And it plays such a significant part to fill us with encouragement and confidence. So let's read. Let's just read 1 John 2.28 through 3.3. And it says this, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, 
we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray before we jump into this. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the Apostle John wrote such an encouraging letter so that those who know Jesus could be found in confidence and not shrink in shame. Help us, Lord, to know Christ, to know your grace and be in the knowledge of your son. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So let's pick this apart. Verse by verse. Verse 28. 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Point number one that I have for you today is abide in him in confidence. The disposition of your heart is confidence. John, of course, starts off with little children, his term of endearment. He's talking to a specific audience within the church. He's saying to the true believers, to my little children, and he's wanting to encourage you with his term of endearment, but he says, abide in him. In other words, continue in him. It's ultimately, it's a repetition that John's doing here because he just said it in verse 27. And if you look at verse 27, it says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And the reason why we abide in him is so that we may have confidence and not shrink in shame. This word confidence means boldness. It means uh, a confidence or even a frankness or um, a public openness of speech. That's my favorite. Of understanding the confidence that he's talking about is a boldness of public speech. We're, We're coming upon, of course, Halloween, but I've already started to see the Christmas decorations start working their way out into the stores and uh, they're quickly preparing to, uh, to have their biggest retail season ever, whatever it is that they're doing, right? And so we've, we see that Christmas is coming. And I know what that means for me and for my household is that there's going to be a movie that we're going to watch, and it's called Elf. <laughs> we're going to watch the brilliance of Will Ferrell play Buddy the Elf. And you know the scene, right? The scene is when the manager of the store says right in front of Buddy the Elf, 10 a.m. tomorrow, Santa will be here. Santa! I know him. I know him. He's telling everyone, I know him. That's the confidence in public. 
He has an intimate knowledge of Santa. He knows that Santa, and if Santa's coming tomorrow, I know Santa. Santa's going to be here. Brothers and sisters, Thomas just talked to us a week ago about Jesus' coming back. If, in fact, they were to announce that Jesus will be here at 10 a.m. tomorrow, would you scream at the top of your lungs, Jesus? Would you scream to the person on your left and your right, I know him? Are you prepared in an intimate way that Jesus is returning? And that kind of confidence is what he's laying out before us here. To know Jesus, to know that he is returning, and imminently he is returning. But instead, for a lot of us, we find ourselves, if I were even to think about that, that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, there is a part within my humanity that shrinks a bit in shame. For a lot of you who know me, you know that in my kind of the bivocational past of my life, I did a lot of travel as a senior executive, and, and probably the place that I always called my sanctuary was an airplane, right? Because no one can find me there. There's no more questions. I never hooked into the Wi-Fi. I didn't believe in it. I felt this is my moment that I can travel. And, and, and from this situation I'm about to describe is what helped me develop a new approach, you know, that uh, like uh, Pastor Ed teaching conversational apologetics, but understanding how to bring up a conversation about the person of Jesus Christ. The thing that I do now is that if a person asks me what I do, I am compelled and I have to respond. Why I do what I do is, is much more interesting than what I do so that we can be into a why discussion of life. But here's where that came from. It came from a moment of shrinking and shame. Because I was on a Southwest flight from San Diego to uh, Sacramento. That's my plug for Southwest, for anyone who wanted to plug for Southwest. So, and, and I was getting onto the plane as typical. I was looking forward to just putting it on my, my Bose headset so I could turn all humanity out. And I could not make a conversation with anyone. And in this conversation, as I'm sitting there, you know, I'm sitting down in my seat, I, of course, pick the two-man seat section, right, next to the exit, because it's one less possible person. And I know, because of my size, no one wants to sit next to me. <laughs> this is no secret. And so as they're walking down, they're looking for a place to sit, you know, they're putting their bags overhead. Um, some people don't understand basics, they can't get their bag in the thing. But you know, you're sitting there and you're watching all this activity take place and I'm, I've already walked past the flight attendant and said, are we a full flight today? Right, she said, she's answered this 28 times already. And we're not, I'm like, oh hallelujah, this could be a first class seat opportunity in Southwest which just means no one's sitting next to you. This is gonna be awesome, I'll be able to spread out, I'm gonna have elbow room, I can just enjoy my music, it'll be great, no one will talk to me, it'll be wonderful. It's all these different things and we're getting down towards the end, the plane's getting full, I know there's gonna be a couple seats left over and they're just this close to shutting the door and bam, inside the door steps this guy, right? He's of a different world than me. His, his jeans uh, don't seem to cover his whole rear end. And, and he's, he's sleeved in tattoos. And I'm not against tattoos, so please don't email me about the tattoos, right? So, 
and, and, and he's got the big plugs and the giant earlobes that he'll get fixed later in life. But he's got those things, right? <laughs> and then he's got that, he's got that flat-billed hat, you know, that they wear. It's completely, perfectly flat, but it's not straight. It's not how our coach told us. No, it's off like this, <laughs> right? And so we start to realize that, oh my gosh, this guy's going to sit next to me and I'm doing practice. I'm, at this point, I'm making myself bigger and angrier. <laughs> I am sprawled out. The angry look on my face. I hate people. There's no way this guy's going to sit next to me. And it's like like I'm trying not to make eye contact with him because if I know he thinks I'm engaging or something. You know, and then bam, he is right there. He's standing next to me. Hey, anyone sitting there? No, of course not. You know, it's great. And, you know, it's like now I got to share a seat. And already Chatty Cathy wants to talk. So you travel into Sacramento on business? You going there? I mean, is this, or are you on your way back home? I mean, what are you doing? Uh, going there on business, just for a quick one day turnaround and all those things. I quickly want to deflect, don't want to talk about myself. So, so why are you going? He looks right at me and he says, well, I'm going up there to share the, share the gospel with a group of kids. I'm like, oh, that's great. I said, what do you, you know, so I'm like, okay, this would be cool. I'll pick up on some tips here. This guy's wanting to share the gospel with me. This is going to be awesome. He says, he said, he looks at me. He says, yeah, we go up there. He goes, I go up with a group called I Am Second. I'm like, oh, I think I've heard of that group. Isn't that where like uh, kind of famous people go and share their testimony of what God's done in their life and all those different things? He goes, yeah, that's it. You've heard of it? I said, yeah. I said, are you famous? He says, well, probably not in your circles, but, you know, I mean, but, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kids out there who appreciate me for my skateboarding and my snowboarding and all those different things. And I, I currently, I, I mean, I, for years I've worked as a stuntman in Hollywood and, and done a lot of different things. And uh, he says, in fact, that's what I'm going to share with him. He says, you know, uh, my testimony, he says, you know, I was filming a movie. I was a stuntman in a movie, and uh, I was skydiving over Lake Tahoe, and um, and so we're filming this, and I'm wearing my snowboard in this, in this free fall. And the cameraman's out there. He's filming me as I'm snowboarding the, the air, and I'm going down. And uh, we got to the point where we hit the, the level, the altimeter, of where we're supposed to pull our chutes. And I pulled my chute, and boom, I went up and started floating. But I looked down, and my cameraman is tangled in his chute. And he's in a spiral. And, and so I immediately released my chute and went to my, my backup, and I went into a dive after him. And when I, I caught up to him, I grabbed hold of him, and I was telling him this is going to be a hard landing as I broke away his, his chute, and I held on to him, and I put my arms through his, through his parachute uh, straps, and I pulled my reserve, and, man, we hit the water of Lake Tahoe in the dead of winter so hard. He said, it knocked me unconscious. He says, and, uh, and in the moment, he swam to a buoy, and I was caught in the current floating down, and when the Hollywood people got their boats out to me and got me into the boat, I wasn't breathing, I was blue, and they raced back to the shoreline, and they continued. The doctor from the set started to provide CPR on me, and then they declared me dead. He says, and for 14 minutes, my body sat there on the shore, categorically dead. 
He says, and then I sat straight up and I coughed out water and Jesus Christ made me born anew. He said, he said, that's what God did in my life. He gave me a second chance. He gave me a new birth. He made me a new person. I'd been hearing this message. I'd been ignoring it. I'd been living the life. I've been doing all these things. And I'm going up to talk to these kids and I'm just searching. I can't find this poem. It's called The Hound Dog of Heaven. And I just can't find it. And I, man, we're having one of these God moments because I just had breakfast with a colleague who actually handed me a piece of paper that was a poem called The Hound Dog of Heaven. I said, hold that thought. I get up and I get my bag and I come down and I said, is this the poem? He goes, it is. That's exactly the poem I'm looking at. And he looks at me, he says, man, he says, are you a Christian? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, isn't that just like God? He says, here, I, I got onto the plane and I looked and I prayed for a moment. And I, I was asking myself, who's the person who needs Christ the most? <laughs> and here he just wanted to make sure that you got me this poem. He was very gracious. But man, was I shrinking in shame. I don't let that happen anymore. I don't want Jesus to come back and find me ignoring my faith and the practice of righteousness. We need to know that he is coming back, which leads us to 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You can just say that verse back to yourself. If a person is born of him, they will practice righteousness because they know that he is the one who is righteous. When we start to realize, point number two is practice righteousness as a family member. Practice righteousness as a family member. If you know that he is righteous in this moral test, then you may be sure, you may be confident that you will in fact, it compels the practice of righteousness. The last week or so, I was able to call an old friend of mine. He's much older than me, he's retired. He's a, he was a, a cardiovascular surgeon and a dear brother in the Lord. And I asked him, I said, can I have a few minutes of your time and just talk to you? And he said, oh, so great to hear your voice. And we, we caught up over a lot of old things. And I said, I'm getting ready to preach on 1 John 2. Yeah, 28 through 3.3. And I want to talk to you about this subject where it says practice righteousness. Because it, it makes me think about how you used to say that you just practiced medicine. So my questions for you are simple. In your practice of medicine, did you ever make a mistake? Oh, all the time. In this practice of medicine, did you ever allow your own ego, your pride, your whatever get in the way and that you made a wrong decision, you willfully did something that you shouldn't have done and you suffered a consequence of it? He goes, oh, of course I did. I said, now brother, you don't have to answer this next question, but did you, ever, did you ever make such a mistake that it maybe even cost a person their life? And he hesitates. I could tell that he was beginning to to cry, that he was beginning to tear up even though he's on the phone. He says, yes, 
ashamedly so. He says, but I deal with it by practicing righteousness. For I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer is coming back for me. I have the hope of Jesus Christ and that in my sinfulness, I am just merely practicing righteousness in an imperfect way. Oh, brothers and sisters, I, if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what. Because John could have just as easily said here, be righteous. Rather than practice righteousness. You see, it manifests consequences in the life of a Christian. For if he who has been born of God does not continue to sin, is what three, John, 1 John 3, 9 says. Look at it. It says, 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes what? A practice of sinning. There is a significant difference between I commit a sin versus I practice sin. For those who don't know Jesus Christ, they practice sin. For those who know the person of Jesus Christ, you are practicing righteousness with the occasion of sinning. There's great hope in this. Doesn't practice of sinning for God's seed, right? For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Jesus Christ is your advocate. He's advocating for you right now through his propitiation. He has satisfied the wrath that is owed to you and to me if your faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. This, brothers and sisters, should encourage you that he is making intercession for you. Or even that famous verse, John 3, 16, which says, for God so loved the world, right? And I'm putting this in the NASB, that he, has, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You, brothers and sisters, have been begotten. You have been born anew. We lost control of this term in Christianity some years back, but we should recapture it because it is significant to tell a person that I am born again. And I want you to know, you have no more control over your second birth than you did your first. God begot you. God gave you a life in God. Look how... Nicodemus wrestles with it in John 3, 1 through 3. He says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Second birth is an essential component and that which would motivate you to practice righteousness as a family member. Third point, know the Father's love as a child of God. You need to know that you're a child of God. Don't listen to those crazy orphan thoughts, those voices in your head that tells you you're not. Have the confidence and the blessed assurance that you are, in fact, a child of God. Look at what he says in 3.1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
You're not working your way towards it. You're not trying to build a path to becoming a child of God. No, you are a child of God because he begot you and made you born anew. Should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That early church in Acts 2, that's how we are to take the kind of love, this agape love that God has, and we're to share it with one another. We devote ourselves as a church to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. These four pillars of the early church leads you only to a disposition of knowing the love of God and what it would compel within you in your practice of righteousness is be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, and to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And so we are children of God. 1 John 4, 17 says, By this is love perfected within us, or with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because Jesus is coming back again, because as he is so, also are we in this world. How perfect is Jesus right this second? Perfect. And because of his righteousness, how perfect are you before God the Father? Perfect. But it does not negate your responsibility to practice righteousness. You see, God is 100% sovereign, but you and me, we are still 100% responsible in what we do with God's word and are following him in obedience. The reason why the world doesn't know who you are or any significance of you is because they don't know him. John 16.3 says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. John 17, 25, oh righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Jesus speaking there. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that, we, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We call this the already, but the not yet. Number four point, know who you are now. Perfect in the person of Jesus Christ. And know who you're going to become. A glorified state of a perfect person that will live in perfect community and harmony with the person of Jesus Christ on the new earth. We are God's children now. We should know this. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Or Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You see, it is the object of our faith that separates us from all other religions. But the already but not yet. What we will be has not yet appeared. Right? Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Are you heavenly focused? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Are you placing your mind and the disposition of your heart in the imminent return of Jesus Christ? And when he finds you, you might sit there and think to yourself that Jesus' disposition is going to be one of disappointment. Or he's going to look like I did, making myself bigger and angry. I want you to know this, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, if your faith is in him and he is in you, he not only loves you, he likes you. He's looking for that time. Who said amen? That is like sick him to a hound dog. Please. You're, I love you, brother. Thank you for doing that. So when you sit there and you start to understand the excitement that is in this, right? It is an amen moment because he's coming back. And the question is, is do you have the confidence of this imminent return and dependence upon his righteousness, not yours? That's what he's calling us to. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me paraphrase that verse for you. God is pulling you through a keyhole by your feet. He is stripping you of everything. He is refining you and sanctifying you because he is going to transform you into something in the future. Let's look what that is. When he appears, we shall be like him. Not our own individual autonomous self. Hey, you know what? I'm cooler. I'm this and that. No, he's going to look at what he says. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Or Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Know who you are now and whom you are to become. And have confidence and encouragement in it. Point five. Know that true hope, true hope purifies as he is pure. I'm not talking about the world's hope. I'm talking about talking about a hope in the person of Jesus Christ. I remember this tender moment early, midway in, in Jill and I's 25-year marriage, right? And we were having this moment where we, we just weren't seeing eye to eye. And she was letting, letting me know yet again how I had let her down. And I pleaded with tears in my eyes, and I said, wife, please, please, please don't put your hope in me. Please put your hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he will not let you down, but I will. And I will place my hope in Jesus Christ. And when we have problems together, we will be able to do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Please don't put your faith in your family. Please don't put your faith in people. Please don't put your faith in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ. Look at all things as a gift from God. Give thanks in all situations. If God himself were to come back tomorrow and the only thing you're left with is the thing that you gave thanks for today, are you going to be disappointed with tomorrow? Give thanks for Jesus Christ. It's the only thing you need. Know that true hope purifies as he is pure. 
Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, because hopes in him is like Romans 15, 12. It says, and again, Isaiah says, right? This is, uh, he, Paul's quoting Isaiah. He says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. The hope that they had is in the person of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have today is in Jesus Christ. And when we have that kind of hope, it sanctifies you, it purifies you. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Oh, how we should look to this all-consuming fire with a holy reverence. He's not your homeboy. He's your God. He's not your buddy. He's holy God. He is your big brother. And you are a part of his family if your faith is in him. John's reason for writing about the return of Christ and our final state is not theological, it's ethical. Like Paul, he is teaching practical implications and glorious expectations that drive this mindset of being found in confidence and hope. The Christian hope has at its object or foundation the return of Christ. That is our hope. Not only can we hope, as we sang earlier, about the tomb being empty, but we run out. We can hope from what Christ has done, but we also have hope in what he's doing. He's coming back for you. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You see, the imminent return of Christ includes four events which we've already discussed today, this morning. His appearing in verse 28, um, being born of him uh, in, verse, in, in, in verse 2, or, or wherever, uh, our seeing him in verse 3, 2, and our becoming like him in verse 3, 2. This hope is not like human hope, as I said. It's grounded upon the promises of Christ. Listen to Hebrews. The author of Hebrews in 10.23 said, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Our hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Christians who practice righteousness fix their hope, their confident expectation upon Christ's return will what? Purify themselves. Not ceremonially, but morally. John has already emphasized that since Christ is righteous, we must practice righteousness. If we do not want to be ashamed at his coming, we must practice righteousness. You won't be perfect this side of glory, but you must practice righteousness. Because we know that only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from the stain and the guilt of sin. We already read that in 1 John 1, 7. But we have a part in purifying ourselves. James tells us, draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to you and me. I'll close with this, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The very word that became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, the name of Jesus Trust in his imminent return. I want you to know this. The one that has begotten you is the one who sustains you. The one who sustains you is the one that is coming back for you. That is encouraging. To be set free in Christ, in Christ alone. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Our Father, our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. We thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you for the encouragement of your return. We thank you that you call upon us merely to practice righteousness rather than to actually perform perfection. But we don't lose heart, Lord, for we know that you are advocating for us. You bridge the gap between us and God the Father. You have already made us holy and pure. But we wait with great anticipation for that day when you, Christ alone, give us a glorified body. And we will be with you for all eternity in perfection like you. Amen. Brothers and sisters. I love you so much. Be encouraged by these words that John has brought us. Grow in the person of Jesus Christ and by Christ alone of his imminent return. As Thomas said earlier, we have people who are here to pray with you. If there's something going on in your life and you just need someone to pray with you right now, take advantage of it, please. If you need to come and meet with me or someone else in the offices and just to get your head around this Christ alone thing, come. We're here for you as a church. We love you as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that in this week you will grow in this grace and in the knowledge of this Jesus who loves you so much. Have a great week.